0: Hello, and welcome to The Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. Before this episode starts, I just wanted to thank you, the listener, for the continued support you've shown The Market Bull Podcast so far. Since we started the show, there's been overwhelmingly positive feedback, and it's just been an incredible journey. We have great plans to further develop the show So thank you for taking the time to listen to me each week. If I can ask one favor of you, it's to please hit the follow button and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Today on the show, I spoke with Dean Tuck, the Managing Director at Dreadnought Resources, which is an exploration company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange under code DRE. Dean started the conversation by discussing his origin story in the mining sector and how his career has developed to where it is now as the managing director at the company. Dean explained the current outlook for rare earths and broke down what the key components are of these commodities. We looked at the current global supply and why an increase in exploration and mine development is required to address the global demand. Dreadnought has four projects currently underway and Dean gave an update on how they are progressing, the key milestones and what he finds exciting about each of the projects. Dean loves getting his hands in the dirt, and this was clear in the way the company is developing and its culture. If you're looking for a better understanding of what rare earths are, this episode will be perfect for you. So hello and welcome to the Market Bowl podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kostrich, and joining me on the show today is Dean Tuck, the Managing Director at Dreadnought Resources, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange under code D-R-E. Uh, welcome to the show, Dean.
1: Cheers, Ben. Great to be here.
0: Uh, For those of you that don't know Dreadnought, or more importantly, yourself, how did you start getting yourself into this mining industry and a bit of background about where you even came from? Because I detect an accent already.
1: That's right. So I came from Texas. Texas is oil and gas capital of the world, like Perth's mining capital. And oil and gas was ever my cup of tea. And I got an opportunity to come over here in 2007. I could spell rock, had a pulse, Uh, got asked to head out to... of talisman mining in the early days to sit on a drill rig and quickly realized that working out bush and sitting on a rig was a dream job getting paid to go camping four-wheel driving came from a geology background my mom's a geologist my grandfather was a prospector my uncle's a petroleum engineer and geologist so it was something that's always in the blood and to get exposed to mining for the first time here in Australia really opened my eyes to the,
0: what would become my ideal career so almost bread and butter, running through the family, you were almost determined or dead set going to be a minor no matter what. And I mean, moving to Australia, I can imagine there'd be quite a lot of differences initially, but how did you find just immersing yourself in, in Australia and like you said the bush bash and the camping lifestyle, how did you find that initially?
1: Well, once I got over the uh, two cultures being separated by a common language and uh, actually being able to understand the Australians and them understand me, it was uh, fantastic. You know, Texas and WA, I think, have a lot in common being resource-rich uh, states that want to be countries within their own country. Yep. And so I think it was a bit of a, a natural fit being over here. The lack of country music was a bit bit uh, shocking to me originally, but mm. I guess I'm glad I didn't end up in Queensland ultimately.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, very fair. And, I mean, Dreadnought as a company, it's, uh, you know, small cap, mining exploration in particular in rare earths. How did you get involved in Dreadnought resources to begin with? So I got tapped on the shoulder.
1: I was an exploration manager for a few small companies. And when Paul Chapman and David Chapman uh, were looking to uh, float a, a new company, they were looking at rolling that into a, a shell called Tykean, which had Ian Gordon and Paul Payne on there. And they wanted someone young and dumb to come on board and, and really drive the exploration side of things to create a discovery-focused company. And because one of our main assets was up in the Kimberley, it was also had to be a company that was focused on stakeholder engagement, good community relations, things that get sort of flogged as ESG these days, but it's actually, you know, doing the right thing by your neighbors and, and abiding by the rules of, and regulations. So it was uh, something that I always had a, a strong uh, belief in and always developed strong relationships with stakeholders. And so it was a natural opportunity to open up working in that in that area and really start to build uh, a fantastic team and uh, with a great board and, and good assets and good projects.
0: I mean, for you personally, uh, I mean, I can imagine you still want to get out in the field, but now being a managing director, it's a slightly different role. Uh, have, how have you adjusted to that side of things, like progressing through almost the hierarchy of mining exploration to now being where you are today uh, and, and being involved in, in Dreadnought Resources? How has that all sort of expanded and, and changed over the years?
1: Well, I certainly never thought I'd be having a podcast at the moment, but yeah. um, you know, being on site still my happy place. I'm actually heading up on Friday. You know Elon Musk, love him or hate him for his recent comments on rare earths, uh, Starlink, and a lot of that work and technology has really been an enabler for us to work out Bush. So I'll be able to head out Bush next week. We have three Starlink satellites spread across our projects, and we actually get faster internet out there than we do here. So that allows me to go outside still into my happy place while still uh, like doing all the work required of, of an MD.
0: Yeah, the the styling. I mean, that's a little segue there. That that is rolling out quickly in Australia, and that's a an incredible thing in regards to connectivity and extremely quick internet at, across the country.
1: Absolute game changer. If you're not on it, get on it. Yeah, that's it,
0: amazing. I've been I've been looking at it myself, but I mean, diving more into to Dreadnought and and the company mission. You've got a handful of projects, and, and again, this year you've done a, a capital raise and you're well funded, but. I mean how did that company start and the story behind it's now process investigating rare earth materials and and a few others in the commodity sector.
1: You know exploration is a is a fantastic game and I think most people view it as sort of a, the early stages of of a mining company where you have an asset so if you're a gold explorer you get uh you get exposure to gold upside but in reality if you're an explorer you're not a you're not an early stage mining company you're actually an R&D company you're like a tech start you know reading Picked up Mark Randolph's book on the start of Netflix uh, a year or two ago and flipping through that for no reason, besides I like reading. And i would completely blown away by the similarities between tech startup companies and exploration companies. And I think it's, it's a very different mindset that people need to get across. When it comes to exploration, you have nothing. Until you have something, you don't actually have any value. And so you have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to be flexible. And when you actually have exploration tenements, especially early-stage ones like we do, where there's nothing on them, then they're actually liabilities. They're not assets. And it's our job to research that ground, acquire good ground that has the opportunity, and quickly churn through that and pivot. So, So, for example, Mangaroon, we pegged that ground for nickel and gold. And then once we did the deal on the nickel quite quickly, we looked around us. We knew we had prospective terrain. We saw the Hastings ground next door. We broke that down to what matters and what can be mapped, that's the the key components of exploration, and quickly identified uh, you know, rare earth ironstone sticking out of the ground, and that's evolved extremely quickly. So it's uh, that ability to, to pivot, go into areas eyes wide open, and look for opportunities in areas that have the potential to have good mineralization in them.
0: And, I mean, the rare earths, we were talking before starting, It's a, it's a flavour of the month in a way. It's now this really interesting... Commodity that everyone wants, and I see it as it's an umbrella term because there's clearly a lot more involved in the rare earths. Can you shed a bit more light into what that even term means? Because I think it's a very easy way to just encapsulate um, all, all these incredible commodities that are required for so many aspects of, of everyday life, but it's just the umbrella, umbrella term of rare earths.
1: That's right. So it's rare earths is a, is a, you know, it's 14 to 17 elements depending how you sort of abide by things or what uh, trio proportions people want to use. And I think that makes it a very dangerous thing, especially for the general market punter uh, or investor in, in exploration or mining stocks in the rare earths, in that it's almost like saying you have uh, you know ferrous, uh, ferrous sulfides, like you have a massive sulfide deposit. Your copper, your lead, your zinc, and your iron are all worth extremely different amounts of money. And for a massive sulfide deposit in particular, you'd actually get no value for your iron. So when you look at rare earths, you have 14, 17 elements in there, and you look at, you know, no one would ever report total ferrous metals in a massive sulfide deposit. Um, but when you look at rare earths, you get trio, total rare earth oxide. You combine those 17 elements, plus or minus scandium and yttrium, and you get things that that range in value from a dollar a kilo to $1,500 a kilo. And when you break that down even further, and as you look at what is in demand and what things are being paid for in the current market, there's only four elements of interest. That's neodymium and or the light rare earths, or the two light rare earths that matter, and dysprosium-terbium, the two heavy rare earths that matter. The rest of the elements are in constant oversupply, and this is an important part about rare earths. When you look at, I think right now, there's about 179,000 tons of total rare earth demand in 2023, and that's going to expand up to 240,000 tons in 2030. Break that down by the actual demand per element, uh, neodymium, presidymium makes up 42% of that demand in dysprosium, terbium, too. And when you get to 2030, it's 50% of that demand is going to be neodymium, presidymium, and 2% uh, dysprosium, terbium, still. But most rare earth deposits occur with only 15 to 25% neodymium, praseodymium. which means in order to meet the demand for neodymium, praseodymium, all of the other rare earths are going to be in massive oversupply, and you're not going to get paid for them.
0: And I mean, that was the the point that I realized There's there's been a lot of noise. I mean, we talked about Tesla earlier, but Tesla came out and said that they were going to potentially look at using other resources to create their their batteries. But the underlying statement in regards to that is because primarily demand comes from certain countries and, and China's one of the biggest ones. And there's this real hesitancy almost to seek supply fr- from them. And I mean, uh, the stats that I saw, it was about 80% of rare earth commodities come out of, of China. I'm not sure if that's changing. Um, don't quote me on that one. But it it sort of opens up the opportunities, in particular for Australia, as, as a huge opportunity to to find these resources, which is easier said than done. But the, this opportunity to then supply this this ever growing demand into the market, and if those stats are anything to go by, and we all know how important these these commodities are, and how there's a over looming lack of of supply, then it is really a, a, an awesome spot to be an Australian explorer. But when we're when we're thinking about these materials, and it might not be necessarily what Dreadnought focuses on, but but for for listeners that they need to understand where these resources are used, where is it impacted on everyday life?
1: That's a a pretty loaded question. There, there's a lot going on. If we take a step back and what's really driving it, that is the the EV revolution. As we come a low carbon environment, you have to generate electricity using mechanical means like wind turbines and that requires a magnet to then convert that into electrical energy. And then the other end of that, you have to convert electrical energy into mechanical energy, uh, which is the EV motors. And when you look at the rare earth magnets, the consumption from those two things is going to be astronomical. But the rare earth magnets are used, there's dozens of magnets in a rare earth car, in in any car. So you have a. Internal combustion engine car, and you have automatic windows, you have automatic seats, you have anything like that that has an electric motor. There's a rare earth magnet in there. Uh, when you look at, you know, Elon Musk or, and the Tesla talk recently, and they talked about removing earths from the uh, from the powertrain, not the rest of the car, just the powertrain. Um, they also went on in the same conversation and talked about robotics, and in order to have a robot moving fingers and moving around is going to take astronomically amounts of, of rare earth magnets in there to actually make that happen. And so anything that requires an electric motor is going to have a lot of rare earth magnets. And this is where there's a very long disconnect between mining and exploration. What we're doing the supply of the raw materials for rare earths and the ultimate in need, which is the critical component, which is the rare earth magnet. Uh, Thomas Krummer at the at the uh, Singapore Future Facing Metals Conference last week in Singapore, and Thomas Krumer, the Rare Earth Observer, uh, fantastic. If you're interested, get on his blog. Uh, it's a fantastic source of information. And he made a good point about the geopolitical underpinning and the EV transition we just talked about. And that is the world has two options. We can either try and secure our own supply chains and, and, and position China in the corner and develop our own supply chains, or we can go carbon neutral by 2050. And, and that's because of this entire middle ground of midstream and downstream processing to get from the ground to the mats. And so when you look at the mining side of that, uh, you know, set aside geopolitics for now, look at the mining. So we find rare earths in the ground. Lots of people are exploring for rare earths in the ground. First step there is then to produce a concentrate. So prove up the resource. Can you produce a concentrate that can then be processed? From that point on, once you do that flotation and produce a con, It goes into a chemical industry. It's not a mining industry anymore. It's this whole other world. And not many other commodities have this midstream, downstream complexity that rares have. Pretty much no other commodity does. And so once you have the concentrate, you then have to create a mixed rare carbonate. You then have to create a rare oxide. You then have to create rare metals and, and alloys. And then from those, do you get the magnets? And then once you get the magnets, do they then go into the turbines and the cars and the jet fighters and the robots and everything else? And so that's where the world has started to discover a lot more rare earth deposits and we can start producing more concentrates. But in order for the world to have an ex-China supply chain to magnets, they would have to create all of that midstream and downstream processing. Because at the moment, nearly all of that is done in China, very little bit in Japan and even less in
0: And I mean, that's the, the key there is it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I think there's this, as you said, this disconnect between reality of we want all these incredible technologies and this this net zero and these incredible cars and robots but uh there's there's been no real development in mines and even exploration and there's this sudden tick up because the penny's dropped for example that oh we don't actually have the supply we don't have the resources we don't have any of the manufacturing necessarily set up to refine the the key components of of all these technologies and there's almost this this tailwind now which i think is incredible that it's now refocusing back to if we want to go down this this path of EVs and you've got to, got to get back into the ground, got to get back into finding these resources. So with, with Dreadnought position as it is now, you've got a handful of projects. What's so exciting about the, the projects that you've got going on at the moment?
1: I one of the most exciting things about our Rare Earth project in particular is one, we're next door to a mine going into development. So a lot of Rare Earth deposits out there are going to really struggle to get to that first stage of being able to produce a concentrate, get it out of the ground because the grades are too low. Or produce a concentrate because the mineralogy is incorrect. So if you are looking at companies, make sure you actually look at grades and actually look at mineralogy. Um, secondly, when you look at Dreadnoughts mineralogy, we have the right monazite, especially in the near surface, and that has extremely high neodymium, praseodymium. So we went back to if you were to produce an ideal concentrate, uh, it would have you know 40 to 50% neodymium, praseodymium, and 2% to terbium. And most of the world has 15 to 24. Whereas the, the monazite concentrate that's being produced out of the Skifford Creek Fergobontide complex, which is Hastings next door and us and Lanthanine next door to that as well, is ours is actually running between 30% and, and 47%, uh, I think up to 52% for Simon's Find. And that's actually a really, really attractive concentrate to actually go onto the market. And when you look at what's evolving around us, yes, there's going to be a lot of headwinds for that midstream downstream processing if we're going to ex-China um but you have this massive government intervention uh, which is something you don't generally see in a lot of commodities or in the resource space and I, I always think back to you know america you know we invaded all these countries to become get sources of oil and gas and we're net importers and all the rest of it and then as soon as america decided it wanted to be a net exporter of oil and gas within 2 years it was like it's when you mobilize especially Countries like America, they can, they can do things like that. It's amazing what, what will develop. So already you see energy fuels um, becoming importer of concentrates, monocytes to produce rare earths. Uh, you have facilities being built in China. You have processing facilities being built in Texas. You have a magnet facility being built in Texas. And yes, a lot of these initially are going to have really small inputs, but it's going to grow and it's going to grow very rapidly.
0: So then for your, as we said, it's almost this small fish in a really, really big and emerging pond. And I can imagine that the government support and and encouragement, I mean, there's 100% going to be roadblocks and barriers. And we all know that mining now has this looming ESG component uh, or across any industry and that you have to do things the right way. Um, And it's in a way you'd say mining and ESG aren't necessarily going to be hand in hand in in just the, the, the premise of what it stands for, but you can still operate within those right structures. So Moving forward for, for Dreadnought, with the projects that you've got, what are the, the timelines or objectives to get accomplished now that, as we said, you, you've done the raise, you've got some money in the bank, you can start getting back in and really executing some of the, the game plan and, and objectives for, for the company. What are some of those?
1: Yeah, so for our Kimberley project where we made a copper discovery, copper, cobalt, silver, gold in 2020, uh, we'll be continuing to advance that project this year. So we will be seeing is there scale in that project if we can see scale, like an Ivanco style opportunity, then we'll test the MET. We'll make sure we can produce a product, and then next year, get up there and start resource drilling and start that study work. For our Kimberly project, sorry, for our Mangaroon Nickel, we have the first quantum. We'll be drilling some more targets there. It's about discovery. For our gold at Mangaroon, our high-grade gold, the star of Mangaroon, one of the reasons why we first place, we'll be doing some discovery drilling out there. And then central Yogan, nickel and gold, also discovery drilling. So the rare earths are quite more advanced. So we have the discovery and our first resource on the rare earths. Kimberly has got a discovery. Need to make a couple more and deliver resources on that. So the bulk of our funding, while we're doing that work in the background, is going to be on the rare earths. We put out our maiden resource, initial resource, just after Christmas. And we will now be, we're out there right now with three rigs. I got 28-man camp built up on site. And we are... uh, exploring the rest of that area to see how much material we have. We're going to convert that to resource and start to underpin the study work. So we need to make some additional discoveries. We need to convert those to resource and then use that to underpin the economic studies. And those are what I think people are really waiting for. Part of that's the network and everything else that goes.
0: And I mean, already thinking from a person that's never really been involved in mining, I mean, there's got to be a lot of organization and I want to say stress as well in regards to making sure that you're optimizing your time, your resources, people on certain sites. And that's before even thinking about, again, engagement with local communities, working with the government, working with just even local local councils or, or groups out there. I mean, from, from your point of view, now being in a position where that's really, you're the head honcho, that's part of your goal. How do you manage all that? And what are some of the insights in regards that you've learned at least? Being in that position instead of being out, and, and I mean, you'd still like to be out in the ground, but you've got a lot more responsibility from from that point of view.
1: That's right. It's get started early. So, we have a saying here within Dreadnought uh, plan for success, budget for failure. So, any hole could be the next discovery hole, uh, but chances are it's So, But we always want it to be. And so, before we even drill a hole into the ground, uh, we have environmental surveys underway. Uh, we have our engagement with our native title crews before we step foot on the ground in the first place. We always have our heritage surveys in place. I'm actually going up on Friday uh, to do that heritage survey. I view it as if the elders are going to be there, especially main elders. They're the CEOs, MDs, chairmen of their organizations. And so I'm there to meet with them and make sure everything's going okay. So we've had, this will be our fourth or fifth heritage survey. I've been on all but one. Um, it's our passionless up there, relationships. So how do we how do we handle it? Well, we've been doing it from day one. You know, it's not just exploration out there on the bush. All of our approvals, all of our relationships, all of our surveys, whether it's environmental uh, radiation, whether it's, um, you know, we have uh surveys going on out there, the search for groundwater and all the rest of it. All these things that plan into what will eventually become, hopefully, what we're aiming for, a mine. We start doing that work from day one. And I think that probably helps that myself and quite a few of our our team have come from BHP and Gold, uh, Goldfields and a few other big companies. And so we know what's needed for that stage. And so we start doing that work very, very well.
0: So then can you talk a bit more about the, the team you've got? And I mean, you're mentioning earlier, that you got approached to be originally in, in Dreadnought. Have you helped build this team yourself through your networks and connections? And, and who are some of the really important people in, in the team uh, without, I guess you don't want to mention everyone, but the, 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 key, <laughs> the key important <laughs> figures in the company? Yeah. Look,
1: nearly every single senior person in our, in our team here at Dreadnought I've known and worked with, or we've worked with each other for the last six to 10 plus years. So we've all worked together at different companies. So Matt Crow, our exploration manager, you know, you always, you always want to find someone uh, in your career that the two of you combined is greater than the sum of your parts. So when Crow and I worked together, we were very complementary skill sets, his strengths are my weaknesses, um, and, and vice versa. And together we've always dreamed building this company, and we've always been really involved with training uh, the future geos at BHP. We're, we were the, the training group for for all new geos, and so we, we got introduced to like you know Nick Chapman, Sam Busetti, uh, Luke Blaze, Leah Dawson, uh, all of them. We've worked with second or third company working, so we knew when different people would come back into the into the team. We start off with I was by myself. Nick Chapman was the first one in. Pro in and then we built the rest of the team around that so it's lots of complementary skill sets that love what
0: we love what we do and how we and I mean that's a, a yeah again a testament to having the cohesion in a team almost is that you all know each other it's much easier to to get things going and all be on the same page but it's, it's important that you know people have their strengths and weaknesses and it's a it's a cliche that you want to team with people that have got skills that you don't uh I think that's really important and it's good to hear that, and I mean, um, now as you're you're in this new stage of of the company, I mean, what do you see Dreadnought's um, mission? Without you know going too far into the future, because I think as you said, you have to be nimble, you have to be within the moment. But of course, there's a fair bit of planning that goes into to so, so the company and where to go next. So what what is the the potential not end goal, but the the future uh, objectives to meet for for the company? Companies always like to
1: talk about organic growth. And uh, when I was at BHP, they talked about being diversified by commodity and geography. And for some reason, a lot of company, a lot of investors seem to want explorers to be focused on one particular thing. Like we talked earlier about when you're an explorer, you actually have nothing. So you have to be diversified. You have to be open. As Paul Chapman says, we're here to find metal and weapons-grade metals, the best. So we will always be uh, an exploration company. We'll always be an organic growth-focused company. What we have immediately in our in our sites, we need to continue to prove up the rare earths and prove the economics of that opportunity and get that into production to produce a concentrate. So if we can produce a, a concentrate, there's now a lot of options, especially by the time we get into production, be it Linus, Iluka, um, Energy Fuels, Hastings next door to us. Uh, who knows what else is going to be built in that time period to process monocytes by the time we get a mine approved. Uh, there'll be options for that. And that requires a low capex and it's focused on mining. Uh, along the way, they might find a partner, be that a mining partner, a downstream or midstream processing partner to help us along the way. Uh, or there might be a regional consolidation. The area is absolutely ripe for it and you see lots of people getting involved with that in M&A activity right now is huge. You know, we have Goldman Sachs appointed uh, with Dreadnought at the moment on No Retainer. And, you know, they're in there for the defense in case something does try to take advantage of us uh, before we get full realized value Uh, for the rest of the assets. It has continued to develop this.
0: And I mean, there's a few points there. I mean, particularly the M&A activity, you can just see it's almost like the the Hawks are in the air in a way looking down on these, these areas that have such a, such a benefit, such a wealth of potential uh, future, but it's now like, can they, can I get there? And if they have got the resources, because You can see that from a big company point of view, it's just such a fantastic ability to swoop in, take something when it's on its knees and turn it into a really, really profitable um, utility or or company or commodity or mine. Uh, But I mean, I wanted to touch back there about the the companies and the areas that you're in. I mean, it sounds like it's almost been hidden in plain sight uh, for a funnier term that that all these overlaying areas, it's more about the time and, and almost going back to these sites that have been potentially neglected or as you said, people have gone with the intention of looking for something because they haven't found what they've looked for. They've neglected everything else in that area, which you can see it now across the industry in all factors that all these mining exploration companies are revisiting old sites, I'm not even old, just yet not visited sites and going back with a fresh set of eyes. I mean, within that area, it seems to be quite rich in, in rare earth and resources. Uh, I mean, A, is is there been historical... Evidence to suggest this, or have you done a lot of research on yourself? And then the second part, which I think is really interesting, is you've got these blocks of land. How do the companies almost coexist, or collaborate, or even you know help each other out, being in such a, a, a localized area?
1: Some good good questions there again. Quite a loaded loaded uh, statement. So I guess. When it comes to project generation, like that's really the heart and soul of, of what we do at Dreadnought uh, and, and the ability to actually assess that ground. Uh, you get a lot of real estate companies out there that'll pay ground and sit on it and hope for a neurology play like Dreadnought to come along. Um, but when we look at ground, one of the greatest things, the most important things we look at is, is how unloved it is. You know, most people will say brownfields is the way to go, shadow of the head frame. But when you look at the biggest discoveries over the last 10, 15 years, your, your jewel of Mars, your Hemi's, your... Uh, Lion Lyon Towns, your um, Nova Bollinger's, your, your, this, the list goes on and on, your Griers and, and Tropicana's, none of them were anywhere near head frame. So the lack of mineralization in an area that geologically should be mineralized is the most prospective thing. and It's also the, the hardest thing to convince people to get you funding for. Um, and so it's about a balanced approach to pegging that ground and going after low-hanging fruit and being able to build So it's a, people have acquired old mines and then turned them into new mines and that's a tried and proven exploration thing. It's worked for a lot of companies, so Resolute is one of the best ones at that. But when you look at exploration, when we look at that mining side, greatest risk an exploration company has is when they go into mining. It's the number one way a mining company, Junior Explorer, fails. Uh, Whereas when you go for a greenfields project and you have a big track of land and you're looking for discoveries, um you're not gonna you're not gonna fail. You're not gonna fall over. You might might get might get beat, might get a black eye, but you'll be able to dust yourself off and keep going. So Greenville's exploration, they call it high risk, high reward. It is extremely high reward, but it's not as high risk, I think, as people make it out to be. When you look in the collaboration aspect to your question, um, you know, we're actually working with ANU at the moment to build a an ARC collaborative project we're presenting to the government. And, you know, we work quite closely on the ground. We have Hastings in there, uh, I believe Kingfishers in there, Lanthanides in there. uh, And that's also brought in the GSWA. It's brought in UWA. And so it's a very collaborative. There's a lot to learn. We all have our talents. That's, so there's, no one's going to come and claim jump us when we're next door to each other. And so the more that we can learn together, the greater benefit we have for that region. Because that region really needs and really wants development. And there's a lot of economic opportunity if we can actually make the Gascoigne critical metal Pilbara of Western Australia. A huge opportunity for the state, a huge opportunity for the region, and it's a fantastic opportunity. And so far, we've seen a lot of support from our native title groups and the pastoralists out there uh, in order to do things properly, actually develop that area and create jobs and infrastructure.
0: And then, I mean, that was the, the, the last point, which, you know, the actually surveying and analysing the, the ground, I mean, I know there's a whole host of techniques and uh, there's a whole host of new ones that are coming out. Have you found that that's had an instrumental impact on analyzing and, and realizing what is actually in that area as well? Or or has there been all this information that, again, some companies, they just look at it and go, "Jeez, this has been missed. How did this get missed? And it's more a reflection of it was back then. No one really cared about that sort of commodity. And now it's like, wow, they've just missed the gold mine because it was 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Unbelievable.
1: Early fields, early stage exploration, one of my greatest obsessions is, is sample spacing and significance. You know, everyone sees good drill intercepts. Everyone knows a good gold at drill intercepts. And so when you look at something as, oh, that's 10 grams per ton or one gram 100 grams per ton, your definition of good is. Uh, when you start to go back to early stage exploration, not only are you working on something that's nowhere near mineralized grade, it also depends on the sampling technique that you used and how close you are, how difficult you are to to what you're looking for. And so getting excited about a one to five PPB gold stream sediment is something that uh, can be quite difficult. Uh, there was a book published recently on Argyle. I believe it's actually called Argyle. And the first 14 chapters of that book, I think, is the most publicly as, as accessible explanation of the stage exploration. Uh, I think anyone can pick up those four, first 14 chapters with no technical background. And really start to understand the significance of finding one pirate garnet in a, you know, in a massive drainage basin. You know that's and it explains how significant that is and what it leads to. We can all appreciate that in hindsight with the Orbel uh, discovery. So it, when you're doing the early stage exploration for us, there's been massive technological advances. We look at Yin. So we we found Yin by reprocessing the government data. So that was 500 meter north-south data flown in 1990s. So when you look at data like that, you reprocess that we're looking for a thorn, but you have to go into that, realizing that it's either a positive or a null. There's a lot of null that people don't appreciate in exploration. John Hronsky prats on about this a lot in a lot of his exploration management courses. And null is extremely important because it doesn't mean negative. Mm. And so when you have the 500 meter data, we got a thorn anomaly, fantastic. Let's go out and kick it and see what's there. All right, well, that's not all of it. We then go out and fly 50, 100 meter spaced magnetic radiometric data, highlighted a bunch more. But even then, the frequency rate, I think it's 30 hertz or whatever it is for for a radiometric data. I um, may have that wrong. But anyway, when, you've, when you're when you flying at the rate the plane is flying, the fixed wing aircraft is flying ground and the frequency that it takes a radiometric sample is about a 30 meter uh, bit of ground, which means it's averaging the thorium content over 30 meters of ground. So if you're looking for a 10-meter ironstone sticking out of it, Uh, it's going to be diluted down. So you might not even see it in that. So again, it's about what is the sample spacing of your stream sets, your soils, your drilling, your air core, your RC, everything, and what's significant? What are you actually trying to hit for further encouragement? And that's what we specialize, what we obsessed on uh, and continue to obsess over here at Treadnought. And I think that's what really helps us evaluate
0: I mean, I can see it in your face as well. It is, you know, it's a bread and butter. You're excited by by this and and all the potential future applications. But again, getting your hands in the dirt, uh, starting from where you were to now, it's it's you know, it's good to see that that hasn't been lost on you. Just because you have to do more office work instead of being out there. So, I mean, for listeners that want to learn more about Dreadnought Resources and 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 what you guys are looking to to further accomplish, wh- where can they go and and how can they get more information?
1: Look, the website's a great place to go. It, it, it is fairly simple, but there's a lot of content on there linked to our announcements and linked to our media in the background. We do a lot of work with Canning's uh, with Purple and producing a lot of insights, uh, information and news that's going out there. We're being covered by, by Bell Potter and and Canaccord at the moment. So Paul Howard over there at Canaccord has been covering us for a while and provides some great insight. And um, um, we have a few, bit more coverage. And then we have a lot of videos on on YouTube, as much as I love being out in the field and feel weird being in front of a camera because I got a face for radio, it's uh, you know we do have lots of videos out there that people can watch and, and see our story. And one of the things that you'll you'll notice as you go back in time is that we always try to be transparent. We always try to talk about what we're going to do and why. If we don't find something that we're looking for, we, we call it out. and if we do find something, we continue to advance that. We started off. Uh, we hit went from three to fifty mil market cap in the back of the Metskys gold discovery. Uh, we then hit a hundred on the back of the Orion discovery and now we're almost valued completely on, on the cover. So we we change over time. And you see that most discoveries are made looking for something else. And it's a matter of getting out there looking and the your eyes wide open.
0: I love it. And um yeah, I encourage people to go and look more if they're interested and of course I'm sure people can send emails or, or ask questions on on the website. But yeah, thank you, Dane, for taking the time to speak with me today and Wish you all the best with with Dreadnought's uh, next 6 to 12 months and and hopefully touch base again in the future and see how it's all progressing.
1: Too easy. Cheers, Ben.
0: Thanks for listening to The Market Bull Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can follow The Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching The Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketbull.com.au